The following interview with filmmaker Usama El Shabi is the full version of an interview we published as a part of the Rocky Mountain Review. Tune in to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins or on our website kcsufm.com news Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4 to 5 p.m. where we give you the latest in local and campus news, sports, and weather. A link to Mr. Al Shabi's feature film Nice Bombs is in this podcast's description. Hello, today we are joined by filmmaker Usama Al-Shabi, an associate professor at Colorado State University who's produced many short films, documentaries, and feature films, screened at underground and international film festivals and on television stations worldwide. Mr. Al-Shabi, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Ivy. So the subjects and themes surrounding many of your films involve the experiences of Arabic and Muslim people, both in and out of America, particularly in the context of um, America's many wars in the Middle East uh, as a part of its war on terror. Would you be able to talk a bit about why your films have this common subject matter and how your personal identity and experiences influence your filmmaking? Yeah, absolutely. I you know, came to the United States um, as a child and immediately was you know sort of put us put aside it was one way to think of it or in my head felt as an outsider um and you know i remember when i was in seventh grade i had a global studies teacher that made me stand up and talk to the class about what it's like to be iraqi or or from the middle east which if you can just imagine like being that young and a teacher making you stand up and talk about who you are and where you're from as if you were some sort of novelty or some sort of exotic animal, you know? And I, I don't think he had ill intentions, but um, it was that sense that I was different and that feeling carried over even when I returned back to Iraq because I had partially grew up in the United States. So you're correct in like a lot of my themes deal with, you know, be, being an Arab, being from the Middle East, coming from a Muslim background, and even my fiction films delve into that. Um, but I think the, the core of it is the sense of feeling like an outsider and having to answer um, to that and not just being able to to be a person um and so i i it was it was you know i started to focus on these themes but as i was becoming a filmmaker i you know after i graduated from film school when i was in chicago in the 90s um and going into 2001 after september 11th and the attacks on the world trade centers uh, I started to notice that the language around Arab and Muslim people started to get more violent, more racist. Uh, keep in mind, there's always been animosity and vilification towards Muslim and Arab people. But after September 11th, it was a kind of a free for all. And the thing that probably disturbed me the most was that um, President Bush at the time was 
trying to make an association between Iraq and the terrorist attacks on September 11th, and Iraq had nothing to do with it, and somehow convinced a very ignorant uh, population that it was acceptable, morally acceptable to, to invade Iraq. So, you know, it was, it was partly like me looking around and, and seeing that no one, not a lot of people were making work about being Arab American and also a kind of rage, a kind of outrage motivated me. So that's this sort of like the core of it, what got me going. I had the pleasure of watching one of your more recent short films uh, titled The Shadow, which is, I understand it was very much a critical response to the film American Sniper, um, a film which glorified the United States' invasion of Iraq. So I wanted to ask what it's like to make films uh, with subject matters uh, critical of um, American propaganda films. Uh, especially in an era where a mass amount of films have been made and are continuing to be made, glorifying the United States military and invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, it's it's tough. I I remember a while back, um, I was with some family members, and there was a young young boy. I don't know, I don't know what movie we're seeing. Some Hollywood movie. I believe it was Batman: The Dark Knight. And right before the movie started, there was an ad for the Marines. And it looked, I don't know, it was, it, was, it was either the Marines, it was probably an ad for the Marines or the Army. And by the way, it was no accident that these ads are placed before big Hollywood blockbusters, right? And there was a kid sitting right next to me. And I was just like watching him watching the ad. And his eyes lit up. And there was a huge smile. And I was just found it amazing that propaganda ad which you know when i was his age I, I could see right through it i mean i don't know why this stuff worked on this kid but it disturbed me and finally when i went to grad school fast forward many years later um one of my buddies said you got to watch this film american sniper i'm like i have no <laughs> i have no desire to watch a clint eastwood propaganda movie he's like yeah but you're gonna you're gonna really this is like the number one film in America. You got to see this. So I watched it and I thought it was badly acted. And, you know, the, the film had some interesting moments, but what was really disturbing was the glorification of this, this killer, Chris Kyle, who he was on talk shows. He had a best-selling book. And one of the, the movie did a few things that I found um, really dangerous. One, it linked the September 11th terrorist attack to Iraq. That is, you know, it, it, it framed it as if this horrible thing happened and we have to go avenge these people. So already like that was a complete lie. That was a fabrication and that was put in the film and it connected these two events. And then the other was the opening of the film, it justified the killing of a child, an Iraqi boy, because, you know, this child is, is carrying an, you know, an explosive device. He's going to harm Americans. And this is actually an old propaganda technique that's used in American films since the Vietnam War, where they would show children, Vietnamese children, 
um, not as innocent, but as secretly evil and wanting to hurt American soldiers. Now, a few things to, to recognize here. In the opening of American Sniper, that American presence, that American military presence um, is actually immoral and illegal. Um, many countries kept telling the United States, hey, you, you have no right to invade this country. This would be an illegal occupation. So the soldier there, is not, they're not supposed to be there. They're actually illegally in Iraq. They're immorally in Iraq. And there's a community that's defending their neighborhood. And it's framed as, look at these evil Arab people. They want to kill Americans. When the, 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 the horrific thing all along has been this Chris Kaya wearing the United States uniform um, who murders a child. And, um, and I've spoken to soldiers that have come back from Iraq and, and, and it's, it was not uncommon for American soldiers to quote unquote, accidentally kill innocent children, innocent Iraqis. And I say innocent because they're all innocent, you know? Um, but you know, I felt compelled to make a, some sort of some sort of rea response to this film. The the other thing that bothered me about the movie is that how popular it became and how it sort of rewrote American history to fulfill some sort of hero legend, some sort of you know fictional narrative that many Americans need to tell a fantasy story uh, of what really happened. But the truth is that you know the American occupation was illegal. Um, Amer Iraqis suffered and were tortured, and there is incidents of of brutal rapes by by American soldiers raping children in front of their families, killing whole entire families, and you know those atrocities went on and on and on. You don't see the, a lot of those films, and there have been a few documentaries about it, but the fictionalized hero movie that retells the story and takes a sociopath. And, and turns him into a hero, a cowboy. That's the film that became popular. And it was just, it was just disgusting. I mean, it's just, to me, it's no different than everything else the United States has done when they sort of rewrite history, which is why I compare and contrast American Sniper to Birth of a Nation, which I think did a similar thing, which is to vilify the African-American population and to, re, to rewrite history. Um, to make the murderers, the white people, as the heroes. And um, so I, I link those movies because I think people can understand that clearly. Oh, Birth of a Nation is clearly like a retelling, a propaganda movie. And um, I remember one student said, why do you refer to American Sniper as a propaganda movie? And I said, well, why wouldn't you? He's like, it doesn't feel like a propaganda movie to, to me. And I said, exactly. <laughs> you, why would you know that? That's how it works. It's kind of, it's supposed to be invisible. And um, in the film, there's a friend of mine who had a small role. And I thought it was an opportunity to chat with her about her feelings and being in this film. And to use it just as a place to speak about these issues more broadly.
which one of your films would you say best exemplifies your style of filmmaking and why? Um, so I, I, I mean, my style of filmmaking is varied. I make documentary films that are a bit more serious. And I also make, I don't know how you describe it, more avant-garde films that can be as, you know, diverse as like, you know, just something more visual um, or subject matter that's that's a little challenging. Um, but I would say my film called Nice Bombs, where I returned to Iraq after the United States invasion in 2003, uh, was the film I'm most proud of because I was able to kind of cut through all the news bias and all the kind of, um, you know, war focused media and, and go and hang out with my family in Baghdad and talk to my cousin and meet people and show what it's really like, um, to be in Iraq during that time. I remember when I returned back to the United States and I edit, edited the film and had screenings and such, um, an audience member came up to me and he said, that is the most radical thing I've ever seen. I said, why is it radical? And he's like, because you showed um, Iraqi people as normal people, just like us. I had no idea that like, that's what it looked like over there, that people sitting around eating breakfast and kids playing video games and just, it looked so normal. I was like, oh, and that, that was really shocking and surprising that this person just had no exposure to that because to me, it's very normal. And I, and I realized like how little information, you know, American people get about other parts of the world and how, um, horrifying it is when we're about to bomb another Middle Eastern country, how quickly the media and the movies dehumanize people and make them something that is easy for folks to kill, like a video game or watching it from a distance, you know, like there were no, there's maybe like one American reporter on the ground during the bombings. All the American media and press, they were in tanks. They're literally embedded with the military. Their perspective was, was through guns and tanks and not, and not that they weren't doing their job, which is they should have been with the families and the people. Um, so, you know, I felt like that film changed my life and brought some attention to my work. And, but more importantly, you know, started the conversation about why do we keep doing this? Why does the United States keep you know, killing and bombing people from the Middle East and, and what they did to Iraq. I mean, it's, it's recorded. It's, it's almost half a million Iraqis were killed as a direct result of the United States invasion. So that film, Nice Bombs, and maybe like American Arab is another documentary um, where I talk more about, you know, um, being an immigrant and talk to other immigrant families. Um, but I don't know, it's hard for me to kind of choose one because I just, I keep 
I keep working and I keep moving. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think those two, but especially Nice Bombs. How did you first get into filmmaking and what do you love about it? Well, I come from an art background. I mean, when I was a kid, I always drew and I painted and I was, I was good at it. I'd win like little competitions and things. Um, and I wasn't like a realist like painter. I mean, I, a lot of it was from my imagination. I was really influenced by science fiction movies and horror movies and like really, and also surrealism, art and the Renaissance and everything kind of around me. I took in and put into my art um, and thought I would go to art school, but just that never happened. And, you know, when I was in high school, my parents divorced and things weren't good in my life. And really a lot of my twenties, I just kind of wandered. I was a bit lost. I traveled a lot and just experimented with different ways of living and expressing myself. So I was always good at that. Film, I kind of found film accidentally. I um, always rented movies that were a bit more on the cult side or more underground films or foreign movies that were just not your typical uh, mainstream stuff. I was attracted to kind of darker and weirder movies. And I had an old Super 8 camera, so I started shooting little films. And I had, I, did, I had made videos when I was younger, but never thought of it as art. Um, and so I just got really excited about making films, and then I ended up um, going to school at Columbia College in Chicago. And so that moved to Chicago to go to Columbia College and go to film school in the 90s. That completely changed my life and the course of my career. Um, but again, it wasn't like I didn't go see movies in the mall or some, you know, <laughs> like some big Hollywood movie and was influenced by that. It was I was watching a lot of underground films and avant-garde films. Um, and that was the stuff that made me think that I could do it. And also just thinking about kind of some of the pop culture I grew up with in the Middle East and um and my own identity as kind of being an immigrant and growing up in two different cultures i thought i had i thought it'd be something that i could talk about and express in filmmaking um and also i like when i was in film school i didn't you know a lot of my classmates were just like these you know they they knew so much about cinema and cinema history and they had all these favorite directors and they had watched every single film out there and knew everything about Hitchcock and Tarantino and um you know so on and I didn't I I read a lot I liked music you know and I was still really attracted to art and painting and so I think bringing that into the work I made um, it, it gave my work a kind of a different tone than some of my peers. And, and I'm not saying it was better. I'm just saying it was different. And I, I guess I've always approached it that way. Just come from a more artistic, um, origin and also a personal place that I'm always indirectly talk directly or indirectly talking about something that I know about something personal.
what sort of films do you enjoy watching and um what ways if any do they influence your work um i watch all sorts of films i mean i mean don't get me wrong i i like commercial movies um i mean i i teach film so a lot of the films that i teach uh i love um let's see i I like a lot. I'll tell you a film that I really kind of discovered. Um, it was a film that came out in 1966. It's called Black Girl. And it's by uh, Senegal director Osman Sembien. And definitely like an independent film, black and white. Um, and I guess, you know, it's not like the slick stuff that you would see today. But to me, this film just felt like something that I could connect with and also teach. And, you know, it's the main character is this black woman and she's hired as a maid. And it's really about kind of white racism and colonialism and slavery. And it centered her, it was from her perspective. And that's what I loved about it. And just like, rarely do we see films like that. Um, so I've been, you know, I, I mean, I am a fan of, of, you know, the French New Wave and Hitchcock. Um, but I also like to go to other parts of the world and get deeper into their filmmakers. So I've also been um, watching Russian filmmaker, um, Andre Tarkovsky and you know he's someone I've been paying attention to I just got his book sculpting in time and uh, just finished recently finished stalker um, so yeah but I think when I was younger I don't know I I really loved horror movies I love science fiction movies but in my 20s I started watching more films from underground filmmakers like Richard Kern and Lydia Lunch, um, transgressive filmmakers, um, and even a filmmaker like Maya Darren, uh, Meshes of the Afternoon, was a film when I first saw it, it really perplexed me. I, I didn't like it, but I kept returning to it. It sort of grabbed me. Um, Louis Benwell is another one. Um, Exterminating Angel is kind of was a big film that influenced me. Um, and even like being a teenager and, you know, going to see Blue Velvet on the big screen by David Lynch was, was, was pretty mind blowing. And I think got in, got in my blood, um, that there's different ways of viewing cinema and there are that you can take risks as a filmmaker. I mean, I think if David Lynch's film, Eraserhead, is a phenomenal statement on what is possible with filmmaking. Um, so, you know, and I, and I, st I, I was trained as a filmmaker. I was taught to actually work on celluloid film. You know, we had a Bolex 16 millimeter camera. We shot on film, we edited on film, 
and we presented our work on film. You know, we're talking like physical film where we have, you know, when you make an edit, you take a razor and you splice the film. Um, while I was in film school, we started slowly to dig into digital editing and working with video cameras. And in fact, my first feature, I shot all on video. And I remember some of the purists, they're like, oh, you made a feature, that's so great. How much did it cost you? What did you shoot it on? I'm like, cost me this much, I shot on video. They're like, video? <laughs> you know, it was like, wasn't taken seriously. Now everything shot on video. But um, yeah, I think, you know, some of those films and also just coming from a more DIY culture, do it yourself. Like I was, I was more of a punk when I was a teenager and we made zines and bands just got together and we just, we just kind of created our own world, our own media. And like, especially in the eighties, there was kind of mainstream America. And then there was this other side where, you know, punk bands and punk zines and more cult movies and underground films, they had their own world. And it was sort of outside of this commercial world. And so I always had that attitude that I didn't need a lot to make art, to make movies. And I think that continues. So when I find work like films that reflect some of that attitude, that sort of independent spirit, I'm attracted to it. Uh, I'm sure many of our listeners have only been exposed to mainstream Hollywood cinema. Um, what advice would you give to somebody interested in getting into the underground film scene? Um, I would start with like a film festival, like the Chicago Underground Film Festival, which is one of the oldest running underground film festivals um, in the United States. And like what that word means now is definitely changed. But I think it represents people that fall outside of the mainstream um, and don't, you know, filmmakers that don't care about um, making money or being, you know, ex you know, successful in this commercial way. Um, they're more interested in making a statement about who they are or what they want to say or something in the world that needs attention that no one's been paying attention to. So I think it's a place to start. I mean, even a site like Canopy, which any CSU student, if they sign up on Canopy, it's free, has a ton of avant-garde films, experimental films, um, foreign films, older films. I just say dig into stuff like, you know, go look into Kurosawa or, um look at you know watch more films by women um and think about think about the hollywood films that maybe you grew up with as just being a really small percentage of the type of films that are out there there's just there's this whole world of cinema and the Hollywood version only represents a small portion of that. There's stuff coming out of India, out of Africa, out of the Middle East. There are young people making work all over the world. Um, so it's just, you know, it's, it's to look for stuff that you're attracted to, but also recognize that you might watch things that are uncomfortable or difficult, but to be open to that. Just like, you know, there's not one type of book or one type of literature Cinema is this incredibly vast field. And, um, and, you know, just even digging into short films is a place to start. 
I understand that you're still making films. What would you say keeps you interested in the practice? Honestly, I think every time I make, I mean, I'm, every time I make a film, I'm happy with it and I like to get it out there, but then I'm still restless. Like I have more to say, um, or I might have a bigger project, but it, it's like things aren't coming together. So then I'll do a smaller film. Um, which is a combination of where I'm like, you know, it's, it, it could be the world that, that we're in. So for example, last year as COVID was hitting, I suddenly found myself with this downtime and just, just thinking about what's happening with the pandemic, you know, and I made, I made a couple of podcasts. I made three short films. I started an anthology where I got a bunch of filmmakers together and called it Cinema 19. And we, you know, we got some international attention. Um, basically, I got a bunch of filmmakers and we all made something. So it's, it's responding to my world. And it's hard for me to experience things and just go take a nap and forget about it, like relax. Like I, you know, I mean, self-care is important, but there's something in me, this kind of fire that needs to do something about it and to make work about it and to say something. And I think it's partially a point, a place of an expression and partially um, a need to communicate. Are there any projects you're currently working on that you're particularly excited about? Yeah, I am. I mean, <laughs> I haven't made like a feature film in a while. And I had this whole script mapped out. It was going to be sort of this autobiographical piece about coming of age. I just couldn't raise the money. And when the pandemic hit, it just seemed the idea of like getting a crew together and actors and finding a space and all, you know, 20 of us crammed in this space trying to shoot a scene would be impossible right now. Um, so I've just been slowly um, shooting stuff around my house and thinking about horror tropes and um, thinking about COVID as this kind of invisible fear, this thing that we can't see, but it's there and it could hurt us. And taking that to a more exaggerated place. And so I've been kind of like loosely, disconnectedly um, shooting around my house, making this kind of a type of sort of existentialist horror movie. <laughs> I don't know if it'll end up that way, but yeah, and just kind of using my voice, my body as a character, um, because no one else is around here. Um, and we'll see how that goes. I've, I've shot quite a bit. And I keep sort of rethinking it and redoing it. I mean, it, it may come up to be nothing, but um, that's where I'm at right now. What led you to working at CSU? Uh, it's a funny story. I, I graduated from CU Boulder with an MFA, and I, need, I needed work. I was, didn't have a lot of money, and I, I had a, a young child, <laughs> and um, I had applied everywhere, and actually that summer, I think I, 
I got a job with Uber. Um, that was horrible. So I needed, I needed work. And I, I had taught before. I mean, I had worked at the Chicago History Museum when I was in Chicago. I had taught documentary film in the past. But I knew with an MFA I could, you know, get better work. Um, it, a professor that I had worked with got a job at CSU, but then she ended up getting another job. And so she reached out to me. She said, look, there might be this position. Why don't you talk to um, Greg in the department and see what happens? And so I just had a, a chat with um, Greg Dickinson at the communications department. And, you know, when I started off, I was just teaching, you know, pop culture class and a film class. And um, yeah, that was, that was really how it started. I, I needed work. <laughs> and Greg offered me this job. And then after a couple of years, um, I was able to basically create a new class called the Personal Lens, which you were in. And that came out of, you know, my background and, and you know, the nice folks in the communication department helping me put this together this new class and that's been my baby that's just been every semester that just keeps getting better and the students love it and um so yeah I'm, I'm appreciative of that and i'm and now that i've been there for a while i'm really grateful to be working at csu and i love the students and even though i don't live there um it doesn't really matter i'm, I'm only in boulder i it's an easy commute and I've grown up in college town, so I, I connect to the community there, and um, and I like what I do, and I'm I'm grateful that I am able to do it the way I I can, that I that I can utilize my filmmaking practice into these classes, um, and also you know even teaching these pop, the pop culture and communication class, you know, we talk about radio, we talk about film production. I've worked in these industries. I've been a radio producer and I've um, broadcast my movies on television. And no, I know, I have some insight into how this industry works. And so I think that's, that's been a benefit. Um, but yeah, it was kind of accident. I got the job, I didn't actually, think I was going to work there, but now that I am, I'm, I'm grateful. Was there a moment where filmmaking changed from a hobby to a career for you? Uh, yeah, I would say, yeah, I mean, I was able, I was always really good at editing and had the patience for it. So even as I was making films, I always edited other people's work. And so I made a little bit of money doing that. When I worked at the Chicago History Museum, I was a digital archivist. So I was in charge of digitizing 16 millimeter film, digitizing analog audio to digital. Um, so I was already kind of using these skills I had, but as a career, um, well, first of all, it's really hard to live off of making independent films. I mean, there's only, small percentage of directors that can just totally live off of their films. Um, so most of us have other things that we need to do to make money. But I certainly received grants 
from my work um, and have taken time off to just exclusively work on my films. But I would say it was probably my first or my set. Yeah. One of my early feature films called Muhammad and Jane, which was my response to the paranoia that I saw was happening around the United States. And that was a more serious film. And I recognized that I was able to speak about um, my identity and being Middle Eastern and be, you know, what was happening in the United States in regards to the, you know, so-called war on terrorism um, in a way that wasn't just about my craft or my, about my art, but about politics and philosophy and morality. But I think it was nice bombs, my 2004 trip to Iraq and coming back. That's the thing that changed me. And I was like, I was getting more interviews and um, th there was a, there was a wider exposure to my work. It was everywhere. You know, the Sundance channel picked it up. It was being broadcast on cable, on public um, television. It was released on DVD, you know. Um, so that, that and American Arab definitely also played internationally and, and all over. So yeah, I, it was a, it was a, it was a gradual thing. Again, none of this stuff happens overnight and it's not like I woke up and decided, you know, I'm going to get a career in film. You know, a lot of my early films were more underground and, um, I just didn't worry or care that much about mass exposure. Um, I was, I was pretty content <laughs> making these shorter films and playing at places like New York underground, Chicago underground, or more independent film festivals, or just weird screenings in people's basements or, you know, or just, uh, venues, you know? Um, but yeah, so I think when I started making work that was a little bit bigger and had to do, for example, with war and terrorism and identity and, and, and immigration. Um, that's, I think, when I realized that I could have this bigger platform and um, who I am and my voice and what I do could help people. Um, and I'm not, and I, and I just want to emphasize that it's important that when you, whenever, you know, when you're an artist and you make work, obviously, you can't help but express your own sort of worldview. But it's also important to recognize that there's so many people out there that are going to listen to your story and connect with you. And that, you know, there's kind of a responsibility to just to be aware of that. Um, and to be okay to kind of be a spokesperson for that, you know. Like I could have hid my whole life and changed my name and sort of ignored the fact that I come from Iraq. And people will have questions, you know. Or I can kind of embrace it and make it mine and um, be okay with the, those complexities of being American, being Arab, um, and, and just tell my own story. Um, you know, one of the things I teach in class is you're an expert in your own story. No one can say what you feel and what you went through is wrong or incorrect, it's yours. And I think that's really, 
that's the work I love, the, those sort of human stories that are emotional, and that's the work I like to make. Um, yeah. What advice would you give to people interested in becoming filmmakers themselves? No one's going to give you permission to do this work. Make sure it's something you want to see. Don't make it for others. Um, be okay if people reject it or are afraid of it or disturbed by it. Um, almost every great piece of art has shaken things. <laughs> you know, shaken the establishment, has broke new grounds aesthetically. Um, Hollywood movies are great, but those are like literally millions and millions and millions of dollars just put into one shot to make it look perfect. And you have something better than that, which is you. And um, don't mimic what you see on the big screen. Make something yours. And be okay making a short film that's spectacular than trying to do something really 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 long like a feature make a bunch of short movies work with your buddies experiment have fun with it um play at film festivals take it you know take it seriously write about it think about it but the best thing you can do is just keep working uh, and finally, um, is there anything you'd like to promote or would you be able to tell our listeners where to go to find out more about your work? Yeah, uh, you can go to my website, samalshabi.com. And I don't really have anything to promote. I have been doing some podcasts and you can find them on SoundCloud under Osama Talk. Um, I just, if I was going to ask for anything to promote, um, I would just want everyone to just to be more critical consumers of media, of everything that you watch, to question it, and to recognize in the United States of America that all of our movies, our news, it's, they're all a type of product. And if they don't make money, they don't, they're not considered successful, and that this is, this is not a great way of looking at art. Um, so seek out things that are not mainstream, that are not commercial. And definitely if you're interested in my work, um, I have a lot of stuff on Vimeo. I have, you know, my films, some of them are on DVD, some of them are pay-per-view. Um, but yeah, if you Google my name, Osama Al-Shabi, you can watch some of my stuff. Um, but I have a lot of short films that are are short and are um, pretty accessible. People want to check them out. Um, but yeah, I, I would say that it's important, just to go back to your question earlier, that just because you wanna make films doesn't mean you have to watch hundreds of movies. Um, you can be influenced by a poem to make something visual. You can just sit in the sun and be inspired. Um, and just to be okay with your own voice and who you are. Um, and you might feel alone in this world, but if you can express yourself and put something out there, there will be someone else out there that connects to that and they will feel less alone. And there's something kind of beautiful in all that. So if I was going to promote anything, 
it would be to check out my films and then make your own films. <laughs> all right, that's all I have. Um, again, I've been speaking with filmmaker and CSU associate professor Usama Al-Shabi. Uh, Mr. Al-Shabi, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. The following interview with filmmaker Usama Al-Shabi is the full version of an interview we published as a part of the Rocky Mountain Review. Tune in to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins or on our website kcsufm.com news Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4 to 5 p.m. where we give you the latest in local and campus news, sports, and weather. A link to Mr. Al-Shabi's feature film Nice Bombs is in this podcast's description. Thank you for listening to my interview with filmmaker Usama Al-Shabi. A free link to Al-Shabi's feature film, Nice Bombs, can be found in this podcast's description. This interview was made for 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. It was made possible by listeners like you. Thank you.